I just want to introduce Simon Gillibo, tell you a few things about him, and, uh, and just to encourage you to expect a bit of a rocky ride this morning in the sense of being challenged. I've heard Simon speak a few times, and there's part of me so excited for this morning, and part of me is terrified as well. That's sort of what God seems to do, isn't it? Um, Simon first spent time out in Rwanda first, but then from 99, he had a very clear calling to Burundi and uh, survived seven years of genocide and civil war, sort of unexpectedly to him, actually. And, and then, I think it was in, I just asked Simon, it was 2003 that he set up at the charity uh, GLOW, Great Lakes Outreach. So Burundi's Central East Africa. Uh, well, I'm sure we're going to hear lots of stories this morning. But the other thing to know about Simon is that he's also an author as well as a speaker and uh, a social entrepreneur setting up charity. He set up the, the charity, but he's also a family man and a cyclist. And the, th- the thing is, now... Uh, Burundi is number one place in the world where the people are the most hungry, the hungriest country in the world. Over 70% of the population are uh, undernourished. So let's welcome Simon, buckle in and expect uh, the unexpected. Let me just pray. Oh, Lord, I'm not worried about Simon. I'm worried about us. <laughs> so just speak to our hearts and minds this morning, Lord. But we are so thrilled to welcome Simon and, and just anoint him now, Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, it's, uh, it's lovely to be with you. I think, I think I was last here about three or four years ago. So... Um, a number of familiar faces, but a whole load of unfamiliar faces. So just a few pictures to set the scene. Tom's already shared a bit. We're the hungriest country in the world. We're we're now, as of a few weeks ago, the poorest country in the world. We're probably in the three most dangerous countries in the world. I got back last week. Um, And it's grim. It's really grim. I have have seen 10 years of of growth in the nation kind of implode. I've wept as uh, I've never wept since a child. I'm probably going to cry as I talk to you this morning. Uh, it's, it's incredibly painful to experience. Uh, so that's where, that's where it is. Next one will show probably... Uh, yeah, so this is the last few weeks. So the president, when he declared his intention to stand for a third term, which most people uh, think was illegitimate according to the Constitution, then people, people just poured out onto the streets. This is post-April 26th when he declared that. 27th, people poured out onto the streets. There was rioting, there was, um, you know, just outside our house, and I'm a father with three children, so it was, it was, it was very close to the bone, and, and people just wanting regime change. So keep, keep going through these. These are just pictures from the last few months, and again, most of these guys are probably dead now because uh, the coup attempt failed, and therefore, you know, they're in big photos that are being seen around the world, so they would have been mopped up and, and killed, probably tortured in the process. Next one, keep going, and again, all pictures from the last few months people desperate for change, and it hasn't come about, and so we're right on the edge, people talking about potential genocide, which is, which is overstating it, but it is pretty grim, and keep going, that's what the whole area is known for, Rand and Burundi in the past, but we're hopefully going to move beyond that, and I live and work in Bujumbura, that's my home, I'm actually a rich refugee right now, I've got this, inc- the, probably the hardest decision in my life is whether to take my wife and kids back into this environment on the 4th of January. Uh, we're over here right now, and we desperate. We all want to go back. That's our home. That's where the Lord's called us. 
And uh, yeah, it's a tough call to make, isn't it? When there's literally, I mean, I was on Twitter this morning, there's gunfire throughout the night and people, more people are getting killed. So um, it's, I mean, I'm in a tough place and I'll share from that. I'm going to be honest with you and real with you this morning. Slides of Wales is not a big place. We've seen hundreds, I reckon since I've been out there, I've probably seen a couple of hundred thousand people come to Jesus. And that's not bigging myself up, that's because God's huge. And uh, that book there, if you want, a number of you have already got it and done it in your life groups. So the DV, there's 13 DVDs and 13 films. My logic, my heart be with you this morning, is how far is too far when Jesus went that far? And Jesus didn't go that far for us just to be nice people in Nottingham or wherever we've come from. He went that far for all of us, every single one of us here this morning, to embrace the authentic message that it's costly to follow Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. That's what we had up before. In this world, you will have trouble. John 16, 36, 33. In this world, we will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so we are more than conquerors. That's what it's called. That's Romans 8, 37. But Romans 8, 37, we are more than conquerors. That could be triumphalistic. It comes the other side of verse 35, which says, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. So in this world, you will have trouble. If you're not having trouble, you're probably not following him. You know, that's not saying that we go out looking for trouble. Trouble's going to come our way. If you're passionate in following Jesus, you are an emissary of God. You are taking light into the darkness. You're bringing healing to the broken. And therefore, we've got an enemy, and he hates us. And so it's going to be tough. And clearly, I'm living that toughness at the moment. But, and I know many of you are. And as I share with you this morning, I'm not saying you've got to go out to Burundi to be an authentic disciple of Jesus. I'm not, I don't even want you to come. Uh, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I say that to, to disarm you in terms of any thinking, any potential gender. I'm not after your money. You know, you've got your own missionary support, though. So I don't want you to come. I don't want your money. But what I do want is for us to, to be in that place where we can receive a challenge from the heartbeat of God. To live like we believe it's true here. Amen? We agree on that one? Next one. Uh, that's the story of the last 15 years. So again, these books are available after. So I've got a number of freebies. So uh, come and grab some freebies. That's not a freebie because I don't want to bankrupt our charity. But I've, I've, got, I've got plenty of freebies over there, and there's, there's going to be a few book, bookstores going. Um, but um, don't take them unless you're going to read them, and then, and then pass them on. That's the story of the last 15 years. It has been amazing, dangerously alive. Uh, I love that quote from Lawrence of Arabia. Everyone dreams, but not equally. You see, those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds, they wake up in the day to find it was vanity. But dreamers of the day, they're dangerous people for they will act out their dreams with open eyes to make it happen. And so again this morning, it's an invitation to be a dreamer of the day, not a daydreamer, because that's a waste of time, but a dreamer of the day, and we act out our dreams with open eyes to make it happen. Dangerously alive. Next one. And this is, this is more recent, it's come out, and a uh, big plug for this. If you want a daily shot on the arm for radical discipleship, uh, it can't be rubbish because it's just been voted devotional of the year. So, you know, if you want literally uh, to get a daily shot in the arm, you know, two minutes of your day, every morning, wake up, choose life. And that's what I'm going to talk on now in terms of uh, looking at those scriptures. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30 if you want to, and we're going to looking at that. But last few pictures, again. Maybe that's it. So my family, and uh, I went out there. I expected to die before the age of 30. It was the most dangerous country in the world at the time. I know that because my mummy sent me through a, a newspaper cutting, charting the dangerous countries. Like, thanks for the encouragement, mum. And I totally expected to die before the age of 30. I, people tried to kill me. People I care about got killed. But I didn't die. But, you know, you learn lessons in, extreme, in extremists that do apply over here as well. And one of them is, is that, you know, if you think you're going to die next week, you're not going to spend six hours on PlayStation today. What a waste of time. There's too much to live for to make our lives count. And if we're doing that, it's because we haven't found what's worth living for. 
and there's a, it infuses you with a sense of urgency to maximize your days. Anyway, I, did, I got to 30, I got to 40, I'm 42 now. Wow, thank you, Lord, I'm still alive. Everything's a gift. That's the biggest lesson, I'll come to that later in the talk. Everything's a gift. It's all about grace. So my daughter is named after this girl. I told this story last time, but there's a, there's a further twist to it. So my daughter is named after this girl. This girl started her life thrown away down, down a toilet at the university hospital, and someone was about to go to the toilet, and they saw something down there moving in the filth, and they fished her out. The reason she hadn't died was her neck got stuck in the U-bend of the toilet. And they, she was alive, and they cleaned her off, and they fed her through a straw like a little bird. She weighed just a couple of pounds. And, uh, and now, next one, that's her. Stunning girl. And next one, she's our babysitter. In fact, she's not a babysitter because I've helped get her a scholarship to study journalism in America. She's living her dream from the bottom of the toilet to, to writing. I'm sure she's going to write her own story and millions of lives will be impacted. I mean, I've told that story to, to millions of people. So it has already in, impacted people. But, but you know, before I, we had children, I said to Lizzie, I said, God, if God gives us a daughter, we're going to name her after that girl. And I love it how in the wefting, the weaving of our lives, you know, 18 years later, she does end up being our babysitter. And, uh, and my, my friend who adopted her, who took her in, who rescued her, gave her the name, which is the embodiment of the gospel, because she gave her the name Grace. And Grace is my favorite girl's name, because I don't know about you, that is my story. You know, whether in multi-merging rapists, pillaging idiots in Central Africa, or very self-absorbed people here in Nottinghamshire, we all need his grace, don't we? And God reaches down. You can't, you can't get to heaven on your own merits. You can't get out of a pit by yourself. It has to be supernatural. It has to be help coming from outside. And God, well, Jesus, the incarnation, God with flesh on, he reaches down, and he picks us up, all of us this morning, and he cleans us off, and he says, you're beautiful, you're made in my image, I love you, now come on. Live out of gratitude, not out of guilt for me. It was lovely with Grace because actually, you know, when they picked her out the toilet, they put a load of um, medicine, antibiotics on her belly button because she'd been in, in the feces and to minimize risk of infection. And, and so she, they, put, they put too much and she went completely deaf. And then nine month, when she was nine months old, a pastor came and anointed her head with oil. And as, as the oil poured over her head, she started screaming. She screamed for three days, and people were like, what's wrong with Grace? And after three days, someone walked in the door and slammed it, and she went like that, and they realized that she'd been healed. That's what had happened. And uh, so she's living out her life now. I think, I, think, uh, I think we'll call it a day. That might be the last slide anyway, I'm not sure, but uh, let's call it a day. Now, that's, that's by means of introduction. Now, my guys out there, have, have, they're pleading with you to pray. They're begging that we don't forget. So um, I did this last time, I'll do it again, but um, there's a piece of paper in each aisle now. Do you want to grab it? And uh, just pass it along. Sign up your details. About six times a year I'll write to you, and I'll share with you some of these crazy stories. They're literally in each, each section, so pass it back. If it doesn't come to you, come and see us at the end. You can sign up there, but please pray, and you will be stirred up in your faith because you'll hear some of the incredible stories of a church under fire that is really suffering. So if you don't want to, pass it on. If you've already signed up, pass it on. But if you're fresh on this one, please do sign up. Now, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 20. It's the Old Testament. It's pre-Jesus. It's Moses as God's representative. And uh, I'll read from verse 11. Now, what I'm commanding you today, it's not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven, so you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, 
The word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. And then you will live and increase in the land you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day, you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Choose life. Over the last months, I have listened to so much gunfire, to grenades, to people dying. It's quite surreal playing that game, of, that game of, uh, of how many people are dying right now. And sometimes after an hour's gunfire, I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm guesstimating maybe 80 people have died or 100 people have died. And then in the morning I get the tweet and it tells me that one person died. And that means that thousands of bullets had been fired and most of them had, mit, had, had missed their intended target. And this morning, in a very different way, I want to, I want to reel off uh, a volley, a, a burst of gunfire at us this morning. And my prayer hasn't been, and it isn't, that all 10 bullets are going to hit you. That would be too much. You'll be, you'll be nuked. But um, my, my prayer is that one or maybe at most two, I think that's all we can handle, two, maybe two bullets will hit us, will penetrate us to the core of our beings so that we leave changed. That's what I'm shooting for this morning. And the context of these verses, you've got Moses, he's God's representative. You remember the Israelites, you know, the, the repeated cycle of disobedience and, and lack of trust and, and then repentance and forgiveness having been punished. And, and Moses is addressing his people. And, you know, sometimes I read the Old Testament and I think, what a bunch of losers those Israelites were. I mean, they saw the power of God. You know, they, they experienced extraordinary deliverance, didn't they, after their 30 430 years of slavery, and, and they were delivered. They had the 10 plagues. They had the last plague, the, the blood of the lintel, you know, the blood of the lamb, so the Passover, the angel passed over and didn't kill them. They were delivered, and then they, as, they, as, they, as they rushed off, they were protected by a pillar of fire by, by night and a pillar of cloud by day, and they got to the, uh, the Red Sea, and then it parted, and they got through, and the Israelite army were killed, and then they got provision of manna and quail in the desert. They saw, they, they saw the power of God in amazing ways, but so quickly... So quickly, they slip back into their default of distrust and complaining, moaning, grumbling. And like, what losers? But, 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 then, but then I think, well, that's me. That's me. So fickle. I want to give up so easily, so quick to doubt that I'm on the right path. And it's probably you as well. So I want you to identify with the Israelites this morning as we go for it. Okay, first one, first bullet. Clarity or trust? Are you going to choose clarity? Are you going to insist on the, a life of clarity, or are you going to embrace a journey of trust? Now, the Israelites, in their context, they, they, were, they were fine as long as things were going well, and as soon as they couldn't see the road ahead, as soon as things weren't clear, it was distrust. It was complaining. It was not wanting to do what God was calling them to. 
Now, this is challenging for us because we're all naturally wired to want to have all our ducks in a row, to want to have everything under our control. But if you're a control freak, it's hard for you to follow Jesus, isn't it? Because you want to be in control. It's difficult, but it's not impossible. It says it in verse, verse 11. Now, what I'm commanding today is not too difficult for you, but that would imply it was difficult. And it's not beyond your reach, but that would imply it's quite a stretch. He's calling us to trust him. You know, a lot of us have a faith, but we're not living by faith. There's a guy called John Kavanagh, and he was a great ethicist, and he went to spend some time with Mother Teresa in, in Mumbai in the, the house of the dying there. And uh, he, he went there because he wanted to, he, to he seek God for clarity for the rest of his life for the next chapter. And, and on the first day, as was often the case with Mother Teresa, with a newbie, she came alongside him and she said, look, can I pray for you? And he said, yeah, bring it on. You know, this is what I've traveled thousands of miles for, for the great Mother Teresa to pray for me and to tell me what's going to, you know, what the rest of my life is going to look like. And, and he was excited. He said, yes, yes, please. You can pray. You can pray that God gives me clarity for the future. Now, her indignant res- response shocked him. She said, no way. I will not pray for clarity for you. Clarity is the last thing you are holding onto and need to let go of. He's like, what? I mean, you're the great mother Teresa. It looks like you've got plenty of clarity in your life. She said, I have never had clarity in my life. What I have had was trust. And so I will pray for you that you trust him. Now, that probably messes with your head. But you know, We need to embrace that journey of stepping out in faith. God called Abram and said, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. So as we move with God, we get the revelation. It doesn't come immediately. Or if if we insist on it coming before we move, then we're not going to live by faith and experience the fullness of God. It's not easy, but it's not impossible. You can do it. Clarity. Or trust. I love it. Uh, Oswald Chambers says this, future plans are uncertain, but we all know that there is first God's plan to be lived, and we can safely leave everything to him, carefully careless of it all. Now, I'm so preaching that to myself this morning. I'm so struggling without, about not worrying about tomorrow, for today's got enough worries of its own. It's, con- it's consuming me. So, uh, level ground. We're all, we're all you know, We all need to hear this, and we all need to embrace the challenge this morning. Clarity of trust. Next one. Trust and obey. So obedience or disobedience. Look down at verse 16. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to his commands, to keep his commands, decrees, and laws, and then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship, then I declare to you this day that you'll certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Whew. That's pretty clear. Are we going to choose a life of obedience or disobedience? And it makes sense, doesn't it? If God knows what's best for us, if he loves us, he's a, if he's our heavenly father, if you are going to walk in disobedience, things are going to go badly. If you're going to walk in obedience, things will go better. doesn't mean there won't be problems. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Now, are we going to obey him? There's a very di- direct correlation in the scriptures between love and obedience. In John chapter 14, three times Jesus says it. Chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he or she is the one who loves me. You know, he's our model, Philippians 2, isn't he? He led obedience to death on the cross. 1 John 5, 3, this is love to obey his commands. I could go on. Obedience 
follows, is, is inseparable from love. Will we obey him? What does that look like for you today, walking in obedience? Well, hear this challenge from the, the theologian Tozer. He said this, every time you hear God's word, God's truth, you'll either go in the direction you're called to go or you'll just wait. And if you wait, the next time you hear that word, that truth, it will not move you quite as much. The next time it will move you less and the time will come when that truth will not move you at all. Now, I don't know if, if you can resonate with that in your own personal experience. I, I can clearly. There have been times in my life when I completely disobeyed. I was at university down the road in Loughborough. And, you know, I was on fire for Jesus. I was in charge of evangelism and stuff like that. But I fell in love with this lovely Christian girl. And, and, uh, and, uh, and yet we got up to no good. And I you know, profoundly regret that of, of, of giving to her what I should have saved for my wife. And, and I just <laughs> hardened my heart. I didn't want to hear. I was disobedient. I got taken out for a year and something, 15 months. That was disobedient. That's some of you here this morning. God wants a pure bride. Some of us, you know, we're from divorced families. And now, you know, that, I'm not condemning or judging anyone, but, but, but the breakdown of society happens progressively when we ignore God's standards. He loves us. No one wants to be raised in a, in a broken family, do they? But if we sow our wild oats everywhere and, and we abuse such a precious gift, what you reap, you know, we reap what we sow. Some of us, you need to hear that this morning. Obedience is costly. God wants a pure bride. And I, I just regret the damage because, you know, Daddy knows best. He loves us. He wants what's best for us. And if you screwed up now, of course, there's grace. We move on. We're forgiven. But let's not cheapen his grace. And you've heard that loud and clear this morning. What does obedience look like for you? For some of us, he's calling us to, to take an initiative down our street with our colleagues. It might be a, 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 a relationship in which, which is broken, which we need to offer or receive forgiveness. It could be a, a reprioritizing of finances. It could be, you know, addictions that need addressing. It could be, could be just, we need to reprioritize our, our, how, we, how we use our time and, and what people we're investing in or how we're being influenced by other people. It could be, I don't know, that we're coming up to uh, a circumstance in which we're going to tone things down. We know we're going to compromise his integrity, our integrity and what we stand for. Well, remember Peter before the Sanhedrin, he declared we must obey God rather than men. Now you think what are there areas, any areas of disobedience this morning? Let's choose to obey. Next one, cynicism or action. Again, the Israelites, they were so cynical. They were so negative. They were so defeatist, pessimistic. They were riddled with cynicism. And I think we are too, aren't we? In 2015, this country, this country is riddled with cynicism. We're cynical about politics. We're cynical about religion. We're cynical about the church. We're cynical about marriage, about any kind of authority structure over us. And we need to recognize that. Now, I, I said cynicism or action. Notice I didn't say cynicism or optimism, which might have been a, a legitimate choice. But no, I said cynicism or action because the antidote to cynicism is not optimism, it is action. You see, the cynics have ended up believing that, that, that the world can't be changed, and that just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So listen to what Jim Wallace says. He says, ultimately, cynicism protects you from commitment. If things are not really going to change, well, why try so hard to make a difference? And if I have middle-class economic security, as many cynics do, things don't have to change for you to remain secure. That's not intended to sound harsh, just realistic. Cynics are finally free just to look after themselves. And perhaps the only people who view the, word, view the world realistically are the cynics and the saints. Everybody else may be living in, in some kind of denial about what's really going on and how things really are. 
And the only difference between the cynics and the saints is the presence, the power, the possibility of hope. Hope's not a feeling, it's a decision. And the decision for hope is based on what you believe at your deepest levels. You choose hope. I'm still choosing somehow hope for Burundi. I, we choose hope, not as a naive wish, but as a choice uh, with our, your eyes wide open to the re- reality of the world, just like the cynics choose not to hope. Any cynics in the house? Let's, 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 let's choose action this morning. Next one, pity or compassion. A number of years ago, I was in Brazil, and we went out there to work with street kids, and this, I've been in much more dangerous situations since, but this is the most scary experience of my life, because we went to Sao Paulo, the main square, we're trying to help these street kids, and a street kid isn't cute, you know, they've been abused and all slapped around since, since its birth, and, and to survive, and so this little kid came up to us, he might have been 10 years old, and he was laughing and blinding, spitting at us, he said, you may be big, you may be strong, six foot four team leader, but there's only one of you. And then they attacked us. This, this gang attacked us. We were showered with glass bottles. We were legging it. We needed police protection. It was very frightening. Now, that evening, in the safety of our compound, we processed that. And I wept. I just wept. I was so overwhelmed by the enormity of that social malaise. You know, seven million street kids. What can we do? And uh, the team leader came alongside me, and he shot me a bullet that's lodged in there ever since. And this is what he said. He said, pity cries. I was crying. Pity cries and then goes away. But compassion stays. And I choose to stay, and I know many of you are choosing to stay. And staying can be geographical, but it's much, it's much more than that. It's, it's an attitude of choosing to engage with the brokenness down our street, in our office, on the course, out the pub, in the club, wherever, and, and, and choosing to, to weep with those who weep, and, and helping out those that are struggling with addictions, and the single mums that are some of my heroines who are still you know, keeping the show on the road in the face of insurmountable odds. And you know, there's so many people that... That, that, that need us to get alongside them, that, that we, we, we've got to move beyond the tears, and they can be visceral, emotive responses when you see those pictures on TV of starving black kids in Africa, but, but you know, you cry, and then you just turn over and watch Strictly Come Dancing and Match of the Day, because, you know, I can get my head around that, and I understand that, but actually, let's choose compassion over pity. Next one, urgency or apathy. Now, the Israelites, again, they had, they had bursts, I guess, of urgency, didn't they? When they had Pharaoh's crack troops, his charioteers up their backsides, you know, they, 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 they legged it, didn't they? Because it was clear. But pretty soon, they slipped back into apathy. And this morning, I'm guessing if, if uh, I did a scale of total apathy and radical urgency for Jesus, I suspect most of us, if we were honest, we'd say, mm, you know, I probably am more towards the apathetic end. Now, this has been much easier for me to live in a war zone because, as I said earlier, you know, you, you know it's a war zone because you can hear the war zone. You can see the mutilated, tortured bodies the next morning on Twitter, and, and, and you can't deceive yourself into thinking everything's hunky-dory. And so I've had to. It's been easy for me to live with a sense of urgency in my last 16 years out there. Now, I've only been in Nottingham 24 hours. But I've, I've seen enough to, to know there's a war going on here. You know, comfort, apathy, materialism, you name it. 
And if you don't recognize there's a war going on, you're not going to live with a sense of urgency. That's clear. So please, may we have our eyes open this morning to recognize there's a battle going on, and he, the enemy wants to take us out. He wants us just to tone it down. He wants us to play it safe. He wants us just to look after and protect our own nuclear families. He wants, he wants us to have, settle for a domesticated Jesus. And, that, and Jesus saying, no, I want you to be dangerously alive. I don't want your highest aspiration to, be a, to arrive safely at death. There's so much more. You know, this came to me, this hit me uh, in the most powerful way one time when I was preaching on the Congolese border. And you know the parable of the ten virgins, Matthew 25, these ten girls, they'd all been invited, they had a key role to play, but five didn't have enough oil for their lamps. So when the wedding you know, party were late in coming, they all fell asleep. That wasn't the, the crime. The crime, the sin was not being ready. So when the, 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 the wedding party did come, they trimmed their lamps. The five that weren't ready said, hey, lob us some of yours. They said, naff off, buy your own. So they had to go off and buy some more oil. Meantime, the wedding party came in, the girls already went in, boom, door shut, and party time. That's the kingdom, the kingdom of God. But the five that weren't ready, they come back, hey, hey, can we come in? And they heard this horrific, horrific pronouncement. simbazi. I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Now, some of Jesus' parables and teachings are complicated and extremely nuanced. This one is so not rocket science. You know, Jesus, I have three points. It's clear this is what he's saying. I'm coming back. Nobody knows when. Are you ready? Those are my three points. Jesus is coming back. Nobody knows when. Are you ready? So people responded. Some wanting to, wanted to get ready there and then. Others said, maybe now I'm going to say my wild oats for a while longer. I don't want to submit to anyone else. In any case, two days later, I'm on my motorbike. I'm driving towards that village, and I've stopped at a roadblock. And the, the military say, you can't go for, any further because those people are getting killed in a rebel attack. And it struck me, as never before, the urgency of our message. Because who could have thought two days before, as they heard that message, Jesus is coming, nobody knows when, are you ready? That two days later, they would be dead. Urgency over apathy. We don't know how long we've got. Satan wants you to drift along to coast, to take it easy, to tone it down. You need to live ready. Listen to this lovely quote from uh, Smith Wigglesworth. He says this, live ready. If you have to get ready when the opportunity comes your way, you'll be too late. Opportunity doesn't wait, not even while you pray. You must not have to get ready. You must live ready at all times. Be filled with the Spirit. That is, be soaked with the Spirit. Be so soaked that every thread and the fabric of your life will have received the requisite rule of the Spirit. And then when you are misused, squeezed to the wall, all that will ooze out of you will be the nature of Christ. Live ready. Next one, gratitude or grumpiness. Now, the Israelites were the world champions of, of, of grump, grumpiness. But you know what? You know, we were close silver medalists as Brits, aren't we? Our national pastime is moaning. We are so good at complaining about all sorts. And as I said earlier, I alluded to it, you know, the biggest gift Burundi's given me is gratitude. I'm still alive. I thought I'd long be dead. I often preach on Romans 12. So one of the free books over there is called Sacrifice. And it's about Romans 12, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, and the Greek word for mercy there is plural, it's mercies. In view of God's mercies, in view of God's grace, gifts in your life, offer yourself, get on the altar, be a living sacrifice. And so this is a life skill I'd love you to embrace and live out. And that is that when I'm tempted to moan and complain and think I've had a hard lot in life, I just go through the mercies of God in my life. I can see 
I can see I say that because I had death threats and this guy came to my house with a grenade to blow me up and he said he was going to cut out my eyes. Was that a fun experience? No, it wasn't. But for the first time in my life, I think I consciously said, thank you, Lord, for these pity little things. Thank you for the gift of eyesight. Is it a gift or is it a right? It's a gift, isn't it? Ask a blind person. Now, the problem is we live in an entitlement culture and it's all about our rights and that's why we're so grumpy because as soon as we don't get what is a right, it's an affront to us. The best thing you could do is recognize that everything in life is a gift and then you'll stop complaining. So I can see. So I've got a body that works. I'm just coming out of two years of chronic fatigue. Thank you, Lord. This body's back to working. Some of you, you can't actually say thank you for your health right now. But there's loads of things you can still say thank you for. Thank you that as I turn this thing in my house and I've got maybe 15 of them, clean, life-giving water comes out. There's the pygmies who work out there with it. Before we met with them, before we interacted with them as a tribe and we reached them, with the gospel, uh, they had a life expectancy of 27. You know, they were dying all the time because you know, they'd have to walk two hours with a jerry can to get a bit of water. And all of you here in this room, you can read and write. We had a 15-year-old girl stood up on one of our youth camps and she confessed to sleeping with a priest to get three quid for her school fees. And all you girls here, precious sisters, you're saying, I wouldn't have done that. You would have done that. Because otherwise you'd be an illiterate in second grade still. There's no room to judge, is there? And uh, the fact we've got food and loads of food, stuff our faces. You know, uh, I could have shown you a picture of a little boy down the road from me, and he's found in a rubbish dump where he'd been eating mud for a year, and they had to cut the stones out of his gums. So many gifts. We've got the freedom in this nation to say, Jesus is Lord. As 250 million of our brothers and sisters around the world right now are facing persecution, where to say Jesus is Lord, they're kicked out of their family, lose their jobs, separated from... So, so, you know, put in prison and put, torture death right now. Are we using that freedom? I had a mate come back from China, he's, and he said to me, he confessed to me, he'd been back four days, he says, every day in China, I do something in my area that should get me arrested. That is to say, telling people about Jesus clandestinely. He said, I've been back four days, and I haven't done anything arrestable since I've been back. It's amazing, isn't it? Where, where it's costly, people embrace it, and where it's easy, we can take it for granted and not use it. We have this thing called the National Health Service. You know, my pastor's 18-year-old brother dies in his arms because he didn't have three quid for the medicine across the county, across the counter. Three quid. I've had that disease umpteen times, but I've got three quid, so I'm still alive. And, and in his context, you know, you can see the medicine across the county, uh, across the counter. You can reach out, you can touch it, but you haven't got three quid. Sorry, go home, die. I think sometimes God wants us to get angry. A righteous anger to bring about change. Get angry this morning about something. You can't get angry about everything. You'll just be angry. Yeah, but, but choose a righteous anger, an issue that you are going to fight for to the death. And we have this National Health Service. And you know what? Half us more moan about it. Now listen, the next time you're moaning about the National Health Service, I just want to picture me standing next to you and smacking you in the face. <laughs> what, what an unbelievable gift. And therefore... Therefore, in view of God's mercies, let's, let's choose to be grateful. Grateful people are happy people. I've got so much grimness in my life right now, but I, I can still have that base gratitude, deep joy that defies even circumstances. And it's evangelistic, I think, and contagious. So let's embrace it. Faith or fear. Again, the Israelites were so fearful. They saw the power of God. They'd experienced his deliverance. But so quickly, back to fear. And I think that's us as well. 
And we've got the choice, you've got the choice this morning to, to be free from the shackles of, of, of the fear that you're living under. The fear of what our mates are going to think of us. The tyranny of public opinion. Fearful about the future. Fearful about how, you know, we're going to pay the bills. You know, these, these are legitimate concerns, but fear is an inappropriate response. And as you, um, just, just think of the last important decision you made. You know, significant decision, not catch up, no catch up. I'm talking about a decent decision. Um, and and just, just unpack it. Get back, you know, onion, peel away the layers of the onion or bricks. You know, just get back to the, the base, basic premise or the foundation of that decision. Was it fear? Was it faith? And I suspect for many of us, it was actually fear. We, we did that so that that didn't happen. We did that to cover our bases just in case we need a plan B and God's not there. And this morning, I want to say you can, you can be freed from that. You can live by faith. And obviously, I've, I've experienced that in a very extreme way. I remember driving along the most dangerous road in the world. Once I got through, 40 people were killed, and, and I got you know, four ambushes, and I got through that. And, and uh, I remember a colleague leaning across to me once with a glint in his eye, and he said this, Simon, isn't it exciting? We are immortal until God calls us home. And that's right, isn't it? Isn't that right? I mean, I haven't got a death wish. You know, when people are getting killed up ahead, they're stopped. It's given us common sense, but, but faith often goes beyond common sense. And this morning, I'd love you to be set free. You can be set free. Last week, the way of comfort or the way of the cross. Now, from the context here, clearly it was pre-cross, so they, the Israelites couldn't embrace the way of the cross, although they'd had glimpses, for, you know, foretaste of imagery, the blood of the lamb on the lintel and, and stuff like that. But uh, they, they, so you couldn't say to them, comfort the cross, but you could say comfort or authentic living uh, for God. For us, we're post-cross. And that is your choice this morning. Are you going to embrace comfort? There's loads of in that war going on here right now in Nottinghamshire. Well, this whole country. Comfort or the cross? Show me the way of the cross once again. Remember that song? Given like a beggar, but lived like the rich. I've crafted myself a more comfortable cross. But what I'm called to is deeper than this. It's time you had my whole life, Jesus, have it all. Comfort and cross. Can they go together? Jesus in Luke 9, 23, he said, If, not force you, if anyone, anyone would come after me, he or she must deny himself, take up cross daily, and follow me. Now, in saying this, it doesn't mean we don't celebrate the goodness of God and, you know, he's lavishly, extravagantly generous and he blesses us. You know, he's a good, loving father. But the danger, if we try to craft ourselves a more comfortable cross, if we take a picture of religion from a consumer culture, it becomes a consumer Jesus. And I, you come here this morning, you say, well, the worship didn't do anything for me. Well, that sermon didn't do anything for me. It's not about you. You're a victim of this culture, if that's the case. no. It's not about comfort, it's about following the way of the cross. The Israelites wanted comfort, clarity, immediate results, but that's, that's not how things work. Now, picture me in Burundi right now, uh, Sunday morning, so I was there two weeks ago in my church, and um, you know, our church was 150 strong, it got down to 30 in terms of people fleeing the country and being too scared to even leave their house because of the shelling the night before. And on this Sunday, there's probably 60 of us, and I'm looking around and I'm broken, Because I know that Ephraim's three-year-old daughter is wetting herself every time. 
every time she hears gunfire. So she's wetting herself 10 times a day. And I know he's lost his job, but he's got six kids. He's not going to eat this week. It's a very bruised body. It's a suffering body. And um, I just I did a blog on the curse of comfort. That's what I called it. So just bear with me on this one. I, said, I wrote this. There's a noble defiance in worshiping God in the midst of grim circumstances. That is where the curse of comfort comes in. I don't want to criticize Western Christianity, but as products of our consumer cultures, we invariably end up conforming rather than being transformed, acting as thermometers which reflect the reality of the environment rather than thermostats which set the very temperature and alter the whole environment. Thus, we often unwittingly craft ourselves a more comfortable consumer cross, and our whole worship experience can end up feeling shallow and anemic. And when things get rough, it's so easy to turn to comfort be it Facebook, chocolate, TV, sex, rather than to Christ. And it's no wonder why my most intimate corporate spiritual experiences in the West have been with the most obviously broken people, tramps, alcoholics, prisoners, who don't feel the need to maintain the facade that their lives are all in order. You know, God doesn't love us sophisticated people more than them or them more than us, but what they do have over us is discomfort. They've been stripped of the mixed blessing or curse of comfort, and in their brokenness, stench, and unpolished desperation, God is extremely close. You know, this morning, God is extremely close to you. If you're going through a hard time, he's extremely close. He's right here. I mean, he's in you. But he's saying, I want to journey with you. I want to help you. I want to bear that burden with you. I see every tear. Be comforted this morning if you're going through a hard time. Enough of the facade that we've got all our lives in order. Most lies in a week, they're told in church, aren't they, on Sunday? How are you doing? I'm fine. Let's admit to our brokenness and our issues and work together as family. But you're not going to do it if we think it's going to be comfortable. It's delusional, the way of comfort or the way of the cross. Last couple, relationship or rules. You know, there are tens of millions of people in church right now across the world who have completely misunderstood what church is all about. They have gone there as a box-ticking exercise thinking that I go there and then I'm going to go to heaven. And that is, you know, that's the wrong, if you've come here this morning for that reason, with respect, it's, it's the wrong reason to come. You know, the Israelites got it completely wrong. They, they, they were all about rules. And, and verse 16 to 18, it seems very transactional. Obey and you will be acceptable. Disobey and things are going to go very horribly wrong. But, 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 you know, they misunderstood it. They, mis they thought it was all about rules and box ticking. And, and, and that was wrong. And it's wrong for many of us today. Uh, in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, a few chapters earlier, God says to them, he says to the Israelites, don't think I've chosen you because you're any better than anyone else. No. It was always about relationship. A lot of people, instead of just thinking it's box ticking, they think, well, the Old Testament was about rules and the New, and the New Testament's about relationship. The Old Testament's about law and the New Testament's about grace. No, it was always about grace. God wants relationship with us. There was a lady in a very dysfunctional marriage and uh, he, her husband beat her up every day of their marriage. 
Because what he would do each morning before going to work is that he'd draw up this very exacting list of household chores that she had to accomplish before he returned in the evening. And she'd work her butt off during the day, and she'd come, he'd come back in the evening, and he would tick off what she'd done, and she, it was too much. She'd never managed to complete everything on the list, and so he beat her up. What a horrific situation to be in. Well, praise God, I think we can say, he died. You know, and she was released from that horrific situation. And then a few months later, she actually met a really loving man who never laid a finger on her inappropriately, but he nurtured her and encouraged her and released her to be the woman she was meant to be. And they, they fell in love and they got married and a couple of months into their marriage, you know, it was towards the end of the day and he was out of the office and she was again doing the, the housework and cleaning things up. It was, she'd nearly finished and she was just doing something behind the sofa and she pulled out this crumpled piece of paper and lo and behold, it was one of the old lists from the dead husband. And she went through that list and she started ticking things off. And to her amazement, she had done everything on that list. And so what she had never been able to accomplish, shackled by fear and judgment and condemnation and loathing, in the freedom of love and relationship, she'd managed to do it. Now, some of us this morning, you're married to the old husband and he wants to free you. There's this lovely story at the end of a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And it's, a, it's about a guy called Steve Brown and he's got this precious daughter, I'm guessing she's about 17, this is in the States, the American uh, system of education. And, and this, this precious girl, Robin, she, she's consumed being eaten up because she has to do this English literature class and she doesn't think she's got what it takes and it's just destroying her quality of life. And he's a loving dad, he sees that happening to his daughters, all of us would, and he's like, I'm gonna get you out of this mess, babes. And so he went in the next day to college and they went in and Robin's on the edge of tears and the, the lovely Jewish professor, she sees that, so she dismisses the class and she says, what's up? And he's, he's like, right, ma'am, I'm here to get my kid out of this class, please. Let her do some other modules to fulfill you know, the requirements of the course. And, and, and the lady said, can I just have a word with Robin? She said to her, Robin, do you, do you think you could do this class if I, if I gave you an A before you even started? <laughs> Maybe. Well, Robin, here you go. I'm going to give you an A before you even started. Off you go. Robin leaves. She turns to Steve. She says, Look, I've, just, I've just taken away the fear. She's going to be okay. Now, Robin, the lovely end of that story is that Robin went on and she got straight A's on that course on her own merit. Now, brothers and sisters, that is how God deals with us. Because of Christ's finished work on the cross, Christians already have an A. The threat of failure, judgment, and condemnation has been removed. We're in forever. Nothing we do will make our grade any better. Nothing we do will make our grade any worse. In his life, by his death, through his resurrection, Christ, our substitute, has secured for us the everything, the A that we come into this world longing for, yet are incapable of securing for ourselves. All the pardon, the approval, the purpose, the rescue, the meaning, the cleansing, the affection we, we crave and long for, they're already ours in Christ. You don't need to add anything to it. The operative power that makes you a Christian is the same operative power that keeps you a Christian, the unconditional, unqualified, unrestrained grace of God in the completed work of Christ. So the banner under which Christians live reads, it is finished, relax and rejoice, you are free. Amen. I think we can only embrace any other bullet because of that one crucial.
And so last one, that's it, isn't it? Choose life. It says it twice in verse 15, verse 19. I've set for you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice, hold fast to him for the Lord is your life and he will give you many years. Choose life. I think this point, I guess, underpins all of them as well. I think this is the sort of talk that during midweek you might want to go over again through the web and, and, and reassess. But let me close with a story by, by a, in an African village and the house had burnt down of someone's, some family and the whole family died. Apart from at the last minute, someone reached through the windows and through the flames and plucked out the baby boy. And the next morning, the whole community gathered and uh, there was a discussion about who was going to take in the boy, adopt the boy. And according to their worldview, you know, obviously the, the ancestors, the spirits, this boy must be special because the spirits saved him, rescued him. And so there's a bit of a fight, a, a competition. People, various people wanted the privilege of having this special child. So you've got the witch doctor who says, well, this, this, this special powers, spiritual powers that we need to nurture, allow me to do that. And the chief of the village goes, well, no, I'm the chief, so he's mine. And the richest guy in the village says, well, actually, I, I, I can provide him with the best education, so allow me. And the neighbor says, no, actually, his father had an unpaid debt towards me, so I'll take the child as the unpaid debt. And then this relative nobody stepped forward and said, actually, the child is mine. And they're like, who are you? What's your claim? And then he opened out his hands. And his hands were charred and burnt and blistered. And he said, the baby's mine because I saved him. And Jesus' hands, they're not burnt or blistered, child, but what were they? Pierced. And he chose death so that we might choose life. He chose to be cursed so that we might be blessed. And so, what are you going to do? What are you going to do this morning? I want us to have two questions that we go away with. Which bullet was mine? Maybe two, but which bullet was mine? And what am I going to do about it? Otherwise, it's just hot air, isn't it? Oh, that was an interesting sermon. No. What bullet and what am I going to do about it?